Hey everybody, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. So today I have a very special guest with me today. He is the founder of The Voice for the Innocence and the communications coordinator for the Women's Crisis Center. We have Jamie Cyrus with us. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I love that intro music so much. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. So um, every chance I get, I want to shout it out. That is my nephew. Trey Angel. Nice. Um, he is uh, 16, mm-hmm. about to be 17. Actually, by the time you're listening to this, he will be a 17-year-old, <laughs> very musically inclined. So I'm super excited to shout him out anytime I can yeah, that's for awesome. coming up with that music for me. And yeah, it's pretty dope. Yeah. yeah. I love <laughs> so it. we're just going to jump in. So Jamie, as customary for me, anytime I have a guest, I start by asking, what is your labor of love? I think... Um, I would just have to say, I, I, and I would probably make it pretty broad, but I would just say working to help and serve people that have been hurt. And whether that's by violence, whether that's by oppression, you know, whether it's by abuse, my heart is for people that have been hurt. Um, and it's one of the, I, I think the labor part comes in because, gosh, I mean, I'm sure you know, it is mm-hmm. it is a labor, you know. Absolutely. But uh, every time I think like, gosh, am I really cut out for this? Is this for me? There's not, there's no turning around. This is where my life is. This mm-hmm. is what I do. And I guess that's where the love part comes in. Yeah. So, yeah. Just working and serving people. All right. So we'll get into how that became a passion, but I love how you answered it because I feel like it really does speak to what I mean mm-hmm. by labor of love. For some people, I happen to be one of the extremely blessed and fortunate people who make money mm-hmm. doing my labor of love. But some people are laboring in love all the time in that way where it's hard work. Mm-hmm. You know, I think labor, you think work, you think putting it, you know, putting in the work, putting in the time and the resources. But then I also think labor is in delivery and mm. <clears throat> you are building and cultivating and growing, harboring yeah. <laughs> this thing. And then in order for it to come to fruition, it has, what's in you has to come out. And that mm-hmm. is not in any shape or form, um, a non-painful experience, no matter how you look at it. <laughs> right? right. And so even though, you know, on the other side of that last push, if you will, or whatever way that that thing gets labored out of you that is going to be amazing and great, it's still not easy. Right. And so the love we do, sometimes um, it's the thing that motivates us because sometimes it don't matter how much you pay or get right. paid. It's like, it's not enough. You can't, right. you can't pay for that. But I love that. So your heart for people who have been hurt. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about why where'd that come from and why that's such a passion for you yeah so um starts really early for me i was raised by a single mom Mm -hmm. um and my mom i always tell people is a human embodiment of christmas um she is she is four foot ten um (laughs) at that at the time that i was a kid she was about as round as she was tall Mm -hmm. she was mrs claus and you're invited over for the next holiday, whether it's November, or whether it's Thanksgiving, whether it's Christmas, your listeners are all invited over for the next holiday. This is just who she is, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. She had a little slogan when she met people. She'd say, "I'll shake your hand this time, but the next time it's a hug," mm-hmm. you know. So this is just who she was. She was a lover of people, and um, I think she taught me that very early on. Even though as a kid, 
I didn't really get it. You know, I didn't really, I mean, kids aren't necessarily going to. Mm-hmm. For me, she was just really nice, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I saw how love showed up for her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I lo- saw it show up for difficult, for people that she struck, like they were difficult to, to deal with or to have in relationships with. She still loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, taught me how to, I remember being in high school and coming home and just complaining about, one particular person, I was just, God, he's just so annoying. Like, he's not mean. He's just always around, always want to talk. He's just so annoying, you know, all this. And she said, you know, sometimes those are the people that make the best friends. And he ended up becoming a best friend of mine. I always think back, like, dang, Mom. <laughs> um, but I, uh, she was, it was just me and her growing up. You know, I'm her only child, and... She wasn't ever married. So my dad uh, was in and out of my life at the beginning of my life. And um, probably I was around eight years old. Ended up having a little bit more stable relationship with him. And started going over there uh, every other weekend. Well, I guess I didn't start that way. But that's where it ended up. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is a very common, you know, children of separated parents. See every other weekend. People are familiar. And he had a paper route. And so we would go and deliver this newspaper. And so we'd get up in the middle of the night and we'd go stuff the papers into the sleeves and then put all the newspapers in the van and drive around. It was a whole routine and I looked forward to it. I'd get the same French vanilla cappuccino and the same, you know, radio station. And then when we'd get home, the rest of the house would be asleep and the routine continued and he would be uh, showing me pornography and he started sexually abusing me at that time. Now, my mom, being who she was, I was educated about uh, sex, about anatomy, about all these things at a young age. She got me child-appropriate books. She had conversations with me. She always answered any questions I had very frankly. And so I knew what sex abuse was. I should not tap the desk. I knew what, uh, I knew what sex abuse was. I didn't recognize it in my story because nobody warns you about parents, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you really shouldn't have to, but you know, that's the situation I was in. And so this went on for three years and I never told my mom because I, I thought that I'd be in trouble. Um, and finally it reached a point where I, I felt like, um, if I was going to be in trouble, it would be worth it if I didn't have to go back to my dad's. Mm -hmm. And so I told her, uh, I didn't use the word sex abuse. I didn't, I didn't. I knew the words, but like I said, it didn't apply to me at that time, or at least I, I hadn't applied it to my story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she said, you mean he's been sexually abusing you? After I told her very specifically what he'd been doing. And, and it was then that it all clicked. And, and it's, she, I wasn't in trouble at all. She told me that she loved me. She told me she was proud of me. She told me that I didn't have to go there. And my four foot ten Mrs. Claus mom calls my dad and basically says, this is how things are going to go. You have 24 hours to decide whether you're telling your wife or whether I'm telling your wife. Mm. You, uh, I'm, I'm going to put them immediately in counseling and they're going to report it. So we'll be seeing you in court, figure out how you're going to deal with that. Talk to you soon, you know. Wow. And you were 11? Uh, yeah, I would have been around 11. Well, maybe even a little older because it was it was eighth grade-ish. Okay. So, so yeah, I would have met him around eight. I'm not, there was a period of time where I went there that this wasn't happening. Gotcha, you know? gotcha. Um, and I think back about the the comments he made, you know, the 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 things that he one day would show me, quote unquote, you mm-hmm. know, that he would said, like, oh, I'll show you this one day. 
I mean, it was totally a grooming, yes. you know, type of situation. But of course, I didn't recognize that then. Yeah. I just, I just thought, oh, my dad's cool talking to me about girls or about Playboy or whatever, you know. Um, because of how she responded, I, uh, I did go into counseling, and I had people around me. She, she built a community around me. Um, and because of all that, I just, I was not ever ashamed of my story. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a thing that happened to me. Um, and it wasn't as if I was running around and just telling anybody all the time, but I had no problem if it came up talking about it. Um, and so I would through, through high school into college, you know, I'm a musician, so I would write songs about it. And when I was playing out and, um, you know, eventually, eventually that kind of led to the creation of my nonprofit and all that, but throughout everything, and even up until now, I mean, my mom was, you know, unwavering in my corner and I remember her giving me choices like she let me make whatever decisions that she was able to let me make you know and I remember very distinctly the morning of the sentencing because we did go to court Mm -hmm. and I'd always said I didn't want to go and I guess the morning of I woke up and decided I did want to go and so she rearranged her whole schedule made sure I got down there and you know just she put her own healing on hold to make sure I was able to heal. And you don't, you think about like a mother's sacrifice for their kids and they'll do anything. And I just really, I mean, I, I saw that, you know, and I, especially as an adult, I see it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't always feel that I'm able to love like my mom, mm-hmm. but like if I can get a third of the way there, mm-hmm. you know, um, then I'll, then I'll, feel pretty good like I just so so it was just it's just been ingrained and shown to me my whole life this is what love means your mom sounds amazing she is the most amazing person I know well yeah yes I hope to someday meet her (laughs) I'm sure you will Chris you know Chris has met her Um, yeah um our mutual friend Chris Yeah. yeah so thank you first of all I know when you've done your work you share your story and sure it 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 comes it becomes part of the work and part mm-hmm. of the healing journey for everyone. But I always want to take the moment to thank someone for the vulnerability and sharing their well, story. Thank you. Um, and you, you know, I'm one of those. Final write it down. It's gone yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I love um, so many aspects of the things you said. And I figure we could just talk a little bit about a few of them. Yeah. The first thing that that um, that came to me was you have this mom. You painted such an a beautiful picture of her. I can imagine her. Of course, she's wearing a red dress yep. with white. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Like Mrs. Claus. But it, it dawned on me that from as early as you can remember, you saw this representation of love, mm-hmm. but you also had to share her with so many people. Yeah. What was it like to share your mom? Right. Like you may not have known differently, but for some people maybe who were uh, raised by single parent, Sometimes, you know, they may feel like I don't want I I want to take as much of you as possible because Mm -hmm. there's only us. But here you have this woman who is kind of no stranger to anyone and and spreading love. So what was it like to to grow up seeing that even though you loved her and she loved others, like you had to share her with so many people? I I think it was just always kind of normal. Um, We grew up, I mean, for the first, gosh, probably 10 years of my life. My mom struggled finding stable work, and so she would babysit, you know, Mm -hmm. and she babysat a lot of kids. And so, I mean, I remember even since before I went into kindergarten, 
I was around other kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and we lived in an apartment complex and she was always watching all those kids. And so I didn't have siblings. So when I went to bed at night, you know, there wasn't anyone else in the house but her usually. But, you know, a lot of days I was sharing her and I just grew up Mm -hmm. sharing her and she was a mom to everybody. And then, like I said, she babysat. Then when I, when I went into first grade, she, um, she had me going through our church's religious education Mm -hmm. and, um, she became one of the teachers that year and just stayed one of the teachers, you know, so I graduated high school and she's still teaching first grade. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just always, I never, she had enough to go around, you know, She, she, I never, you know, certainly never felt neglected by any, and I I know that's not what you were getting at, but it it was, it was, she had so much love to give everybody, you know, and, and such a heart for kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and I really didn't see that as a kid, but as I got older, you know, and and I'm like, I'm almost an adult and you're still teaching first grade kids, you know, um, that's what she always wanted to do was, was teach. And so she, she finally was able to for a couple of years and then battled with cancer and had to step away from it. But, um, yeah, her heart is with kids. Awesome. Yeah. So I just kind of, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. And that she didn't have to take away love from you to give it to other people. Hmm. And that she was able to spread it around and you still felt love. I oh, think, yeah. Which is amazing. <clears throat> then you talked about, and I'm so thankful that you actually used the word grooming. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to spend a little time maybe in an educational space. You and I can help some of the listeners who may not be aware of what we're talking about when we're mm-hmm. talking about grooming. So one of the first things um, when you began to talk about your dad that stuck out to me is that from the beginning of your life, he was in and out of your life. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine as um, a young boy whose father is in and out, you want him in more than you want oh, yeah. out. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So when he's in, you'll take whatever you can get, however you can get it. He's here. He's here. And then he leaves, creating mm-hmm. this distance and absent. Mm-hmm. So when he comes back, you begin to learn that it's time limited. Yeah. And so you soak up as much as you can when you can. I think this is a relatable concept to anyone who has family that they enjoy, but live far from, Mm -hmm. you know, vacations or holidays. You just want as much of that person as you can, because you know, the time is going to come to an end. Mm -hmm. And so instead of mourning or grieving that going in, you come in saying, we got to do all the things we want to do in the time we have together. And so being that this was kind of your relationship with your dad, I would imagine that the grooming process, he was able to utilize that, you know, and then as you were seeing him more, you had, I, you had a routine. Yeah. You got to help. Yeah. You know, you, you were daddy's little helper. Yeah. And big boy things like his job. Mm -hmm. And, and I got to throw the paper out of the, you know, (laughs) and, and, and it was just yours. Mm -hmm. So. While mom was able to give love in so many ways, she shared that love with so many people. You didn't have to share this job with anybody else. You know, it's interesting that you say that too, because I do have, um, well, so many aspects of it, but he was in and out of my life. By the time he kind of came and and it was more stable, he was married and his wife was pregnant with my sister, which Mm -hmm. siblings were another thing I always wanted, Uh you know? And so... Uh, pregnant with my sister and then uh, a year or so later my oldest brother was born and I'm I was you know it doesn't feel so much now but significantly older than them then mm-hmm. you know and they were far too young to ever do the paper out mm-hmm. and so but even I wanted to touch on because even even the the this time is coming to an end a weekend is only so long mm-hmm. and every other weekend so it wasn't ever as if like 
like, I don't live with you, you know? So even when it was consistent, it was still inconsistent, yes. you know? And then I, as an adult, my brother has told me I was always jealous that you got to do the paper route, hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I, I don't think you are, yeah. <laughs> you know? And they know we have open conversations, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, as a kid, he was jealous that I was the one that got the paper route. Yeah. You know, I got to do that with him. And so what we're talking about with grooming is for an offender, grooming is the process by which they prepare their victim, the victim's family, the mm-hmm. community, um, to allow them in with unrestricted access to mm-hmm. the person or people that they are going to offend. Um, And there are so many things they utilize to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, When we're talking offenders in general, but we want to throw out this notion that the white Craigslist van is going to pull up next to somebody and pull them in, right? Or that it's a stranger, that it's usually someone who is well known by the family or within the family themselves, Mm -hmm. um, within the community, within the faith organization, wherever that is, that gives them access, to the person. And so part of the grooming was having you come along for the job. Mm-hmm. The The sexual abuse didn't start day one. Right. I know it didn't. Right. It was building rapport. You're doing such a good job. This is something just you and I have. Mm-hmm. You know, while everyone else is sleeping, this is you and I's thing. Mm-hmm. And so you have the paper route and you have everything with it. You had your um, French vanilla cappuccino. Yep. You know, you had your seat in the van or the car. I mean, all of these things become things you look forward to. Mm-hmm. And as they slowly push the limit of what can I show you? What can I say? Gauging your response, that becomes part of it too. Right. And so um, for me, to parallel the story, I too was a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Mm. Now, my offenders were similar aged peers. Mm. And so some of the dynamics are different in the sense that your father was an adult um, and there's a lot of intentionality behind what he was doing. My offenders um, were close in age to me. And while I'm convinced now that I know what I know that so many of them were simply acting out what they had right. seen and been exposed to, I was always the younger. Um, and these were all separate incidents, but their grooming process was to treat it like a game. So similarly, while I'm not an only child, I grew up like an only child. My sister and I are 14 years apart gotcha. and I have two brothers that I have never been particularly close to. Mm -hmm. So we didn't grow up together. So I'm the only child growing up in a home. um, And I desperately want connection, Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Right. I knew that I was going to be the last child. So I knew that I wouldn't get siblings in the form of my parents having children. But if I could have a sister or brother, because I created one, you know, because they're, I want to do it. And I didn't have a lot of people. I grew up in Detroit and on a nice block, but there weren't a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly yearning for connection. And so when it was the boy down the street or my mother's goddaughter or the boy at church or a cousin, these were all my offenders, when their grooming was, let's play a game, you know? Yeah. And so I don't have others. Okay. And, and these were all before I started school. So we're talking preschool age. So I'll do whatever to have this sense of connection, to have these friends. And so when we talk about not saying anything, well, if I'm not going to come home and tell you that we, we played hopscotch 
and Double Dutch. And, and I'm not going to give you the rundown play-by-play of all the games we played. Why would I tell you about this game? Right. You know, it, it just, yeah. it, it wasn't. And even if there was a part that felt somehow this feels strange, there was no context mm-hmm. for it. You know, and I definitely didn't have a, the words right. until I was much older. But how grooming for them, some were just reenactments, I realized. And then for some who were older and very intentional, it was grooming in the sense that it's our secret. Mm-hmm. We're not going to tell anybody. And while it began, some of them began when I was preschool age, some of them carry out carried out as I was as I got older Mm -hmm. and so just kind of wanting to provide multiple landscapes for this because while people know that childhood sexual abuse exists people aren't talking about it not enough people are talking about it and when we don't talk about it it begins to feel very isolating alone and the shame that comes with it now what I love that is not parallel (laughs) in our story is at a certain point you gathered the courage to tell mm-hmm. and you were supported. Yeah. That's amazing. And it it shouldn't be as rare as I learned that it was, mm-hmm. you know, because my mom didn't, did not do anything that she hadn't been doing before. She mm-hmm. really acted in line with who she was. But I, I mean, as I, as I shared my story, as I got older, because I, because I wasn't ashamed to, that's when I started hearing others, mm-hmm. you know, and I started hearing, oh, I, something happened to me too. And my mom didn't do anything when I told her or some, you know, I didn't, I didn't even recognize something was wrong until years later, or I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't mm-hmm. know. And, and I'd be like, well, I'm pretty sure there's agencies locally that you can get help. And they'd be like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. I don't know where to, you know, and I didn't know what they were either, you know, at the, at the time, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it, it is a big, um, big issue. And, and it, that's what I think it's that, that drew, I was hearing these stories anyway, you know, yeah. as I shared mine and that's what drove me you talk about labor of love, labor of love. That's what made me get into this work was. I'm hearing these stories anyway, but I don't have any kind of professional capacity to back it up. I'm just a person carrying stories. Mm -hmm. I'm a dumb guitar player carrying around a bunch of people's stories with me and trying to do the best I can. Um, How can I get something more structured so that we can help people find the help they need? Yes. So please tell us about, I mean, this is a great segue to tell us about A Voice for the Innocence. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, I was hearing so many stories. Um... And I was, like I said, playing a lot of music and I was at a music festival in Illinois and, um, right before this big, there were thousands of people at this festival and right before the main act came on stage, a guy came on stage and just talked quickly about mental health. He talked for maybe three minutes and he just basically said, this is me. This is my organization. If you're suffering from addiction or anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, we could probably help you. And, uh. These weren't things that I was experiencing in a big way, but I definitely knew people. And he was from an organization called To Write Love on Our Arms. I was very active in the music community. Um, but this was the first I'd heard of them. And I was like, I, I love that you're here reaching out to people. You're not waiting for people to find you. Mm-hmm. I recognized that right away. And I thought somebody should do what he's doing, but do it for people that have been abused. Mm-hmm. Because I'd heard so many stories that I was carrying around. I didn't really mean me. At that time, uh-huh. <laughs> life's weird, I guess. 
But it's just, you know, a nebulous somebody out there. Can somebody do this, please? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, it just, it just was an idea that just sat in my mind for, and kind of scratched at me for a while. And I was like, hey, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. You haven't done anything about this, you know. Have you realized you're not going to make it as a musician yet? Time to maybe go somewhere, you know. <laughs> and I laugh, but I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, I had to come to that realization of like, okay, I need to dedicate my time to something else. And I still play music, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not, um, it's not nearly what it was. And so I knew that I wanted it to be a website. I knew that I wanted it to be like the belief of a person's story. I knew I wanted that to be number one. Um because that's what I was hearing so much is people saying, I, people didn't believe me. I tried to tell my best friend. They didn't even believe me. You know, I tried, whatever. Just, mm-hmm. just, be, and I, I knew nothing about sexual violence. I knew nothing. I mean, I'd heard a couple stories. Not I'm more than a couple, but that was my, that was it. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about nonprofits. I had zero business starting a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I knew I wanted it to be a website and I didn't know how to build a website. Um, but I knew I wanted it to be called A Voice for the Innocent. Um, I don't know why. I think because the domain was, the MySpace was available, mm-hmm. you know. And so I made the MySpace and the Twitter. And then I was like, but I don't know how to make a website. So I guess I just have to wait. Um, I didn't even know the co-founder of A Voice for the Innocent yet. And so eventually, uh, several years later, I was playing in another band. And uh, a mutual friend, um, but one of my bandmates had a friend that was coming to all our shows and I got to know him a little bit. And his name is Eric and learned he was a web developer. And I was like, oh, will you build me a website? You know, and I'm, I thought I was asking for a, a two week volunteer project. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll build you one and then I'll go on my way. And, um, and he site's still not done, you know, eight <laughs> years later, he's still not finished with it. But, um, you know, he started asking me because so he came from the startup community mm-hmm. and was doing a lot with small businesses that wasn't doing much with nonprofit, but he saw it kind of, I mean, he cared about this issue, especially after I talked more and more about where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. He cared a lot about it and he kind of saw it as like, this is interesting and it's good. Let's try it. You know? Mm -hmm. So he started asking me things that I hadn't thought. He was like, what, what do you want people to feel when they come on your site? Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why, you know, why? And so we filled out this huge document of all these questions you know, oh, you want them to feel this way? There's colors to represent that, you know? Yeah. I was like, man, I didn't know that. You know, so really diving deep down into what we wanted this to be. Um, and we knew we wanted it to be anonymous. I wanted somebody to be able to come on and learn about what was available around them, their resources in their city or their state, without even telling me their name, you know? Because that was another thing I was hearing. I didn't know where help was. Well, yeah. man, let's find you some help then, you know? You don't have to tell me who you are. Let's just tell you what's there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it started. And, and we just started. We kept building and kept trying to decide what we thought would be good. And luckily, we were right because we didn't even think to be like, let's ask. I, I wouldn't have even known at that time to, how to say, hey, people who've been impacted by this issue, can you take this anonymous survey? I wouldn't have known how to do that. Mm-hmm. It was literally we were, we were making decisions based on the knowledge of stories people had told me. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it was enough to get us going. Yeah. You know? um, and we've we've still got a million improvements to make and we've made a million along the way. 
But our whole thing is we want to provide community, the community that I was given. Yes. I want to provide that for other people. And so we have a team of volunteers from across the U.S. And so when somebody comes and submits their story, we don't ask who you are. You create your own username. The only thing you need to sign up for our site is your email. I don't care if you go make a Gmail right before you come to our site. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just to prove you're a real person. Um, You tell as much or as little story as you want. And then we have a team of volunteers who are just waiting to to be like, you know what, I hear you. And to give you support. Um, You know, and a lot of times when I talk about what we offer, it seems small. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to come there and I know what the responses are going to be, right? I was on... um, I was on Reddit, I think, one time, and uh, I saw a post, and it was it was just it was a series of pictures. It was it was just pictures that that <clears throat> in in an often dark world might make you feel better, right? Or, or small videos or whatever. And it's things like you know, there's there's the person that maybe was getting ready to end their own life off a bridge, and there's a group of people hugging them from behind, mm-hmm. or a lot of animals being rescued, or things like this, like just just you know positivity and good things. And I saw it and I got, I was, I was not in a good spot having a bad, I was more than a bad day. I was just in a a bad mindset at that time. And I just commented that I said, Hey, I haven't been doing super well mentally. These pictures help. Thanks for posting. And all these strangers I'd never met commented back to me just saying like, I hear you and I want things to get better for you. I haven't been having a great time either. You know, and that validation from people I didn't know brought me to tears, mm, you know. I'm near tears. <laughs> it was just, I mean, I know that I know that connection behind a screen is not the same as connection person to person. But it can still be real and mm-hmm. it can still be impactful. And and so, and we see that on our site. People that come on that'll say, I didn't know what to expect after hitting submit. And reading all your comments. And some people are, are survivors and open about that. Some people are survivors and not talking about that. And some people don't have a story at all. But all of them are saying, I hear you. You didn't deserve that. You deserve to be happy. And and speaking to whatever nuance is coming through about someone's particular experience. And um, it's really humbling. And, and I look sometimes at like our volunteers. like Because now... Now, when we first started, our board members were responding to all the stories, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I am, unfortunately, I can't respond to every story anymore. You know, mm-hmm. we have volunteers that do that and I'll go respond to some. It's not, you know, I don't think I'm better than I right. just have so much. And I look at like what our volunteers are saying and, and it's, I'm so fortunate that I get to work with them, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's, they're not, they're not getting paid. They just want to, want to be there for people that need it. You know, yes. and so to, to be able to walk alongside them or I guess type alongside them in some sense, <laughs> yeah. it's really wonderful. I mean, that is so amazing. And and what I love the most about it. So the other thing I wrote down is she believed me mm. before you talked. She yeah. believed me. And maybe to some people who are listening or out there and say, well, that doesn't seem like a lot at all. To me, I felt it. Every one of my littles, that's what I call my inner children, who are very much still alive in me, mm-hmm. felt warm. And she believed me. And so what happens with so many survivors of childhood abuse is they either don't have the safety to tell anyone. So for me, 
what I try to help people understand is lack of a threat does not equal safety. There has to be actual safety cues. And so I don't know that as a child, I felt a particular threat outright. I don't know that I had the thought that I would be in trouble. But what I do know that didn't exist was this safety that no matter what you tell me, I will love you and your value will never change. And so for that, I held on to this information in addition to a rape when I was 14 years old for about 11 years from the rape, not to mention, you know, the nine years that I had been hold 10 years that I've been holding on to what happened to me as a child because there was no safety created for me to be able to do that. But the sheer thought that someone would not believe me, minimize my experience or otherwise tell me it was my fault. It was so terrifying that I just held on to it. So to know that there is a space that exists where a person can go and speak their truth, not have to identify themselves, but then just get back people who say, I hear you. (laughs) That to me, I get chills. I mean, that is amazing because in my work as as a therapist, Sometimes that's all I'll say in a session. Yeah. I hear you. I see you. I'm with you. Sometimes I don't have to say anything at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just need someone to cry with them. Right? And so that's counterintuitive to what we're taught in grad school. Right? Yeah. Um, no, that's not how I operate. You need to be present with people. And so to know that there are communities, especially in this day and age where digitally things are so important, um, and this is how people are navigating their worlds and their their inner world and their outer world, Mm -hmm. that there is a place that they can go to be open and vulnerable. And the expectation is that because people try. Yeah, they really do. I somehow got privy to a thread um, of a person who posted something on Facebook that was simply like, you know, I'm tired of this. It's not worth living something of that nature. And the comments, oh, the comments. Yeah. Anywhere from a straight up man up Mm -hmm. um, or some equivalent or nothing can be that bad all the way to you're weak minded. Oh, I mean, my heart broke. Mm -hmm. Because this is how people are responding. So I love that there is a space that people can go because that's what they're seeking. They're seeking community. They're seeking community. Right. They're seeking refuge. Mm -hmm. And knowing that someone can just say, I hear you. I'm sorry that happened to you. That's beautiful. Like, I I just absolutely (laughs) love that. And so you'll have an opportunity to tell people how they can find that um, if they need to utilize it, contact you for volunteership and things like that. Um, But I did want to just continue to continue our conversation about any um, thing that you would want to say to a person who experienced childhood abuse, um, sexual or otherwise that you might think is helpful for them to hear whether they're, you know, an adult now, Mm -hmm. maybe they have children of their own. 
a lot of people will know that it happened, but say, look, I'm, I don't want to dwell on that. I don't right. want to bring that back up. Mm-hmm. I've gotten over it. I'm past it. Is there anything that you can share from a survivor's perspective that might be beneficial for them? Yeah. Well, you know, if somebody really is in a spot where they're saying, I'm over it, this doesn't impact me. Awesome. You know, I hope that's true. I really do. That's where that's where we want everyone to get to, right? One thing that I see people doing that I would strong... Well, let me say two things, actually. The two things are, one, we love to compare our stories to other people, mm-hmm. right? And so I had somebody one time say, I know that there's a support group near me. I would like to go. I have the means to go. But I don't feel like my story is quote unquote bad enough, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to take away a resource from somebody else who had it worse. Mm-hmm. And and to to this person, I said, you know, when I think of my experience, if I compare it, like maybe it's not quote unquote as bad. But guess what? I still had to heal from it, you mm-hmm. know. And I told, I said, like if you stubbed your toe. It doesn't matter how many broken legs exist in the world. You still got to heal your toe. Mm-hmm. It's going to impact the way you walk. Is it going to impact the way you walk the same way someone else's broken leg is? Probably not. But their broken leg, no matter how quickly it heals or doesn't heal, has no bearing on your stubbed toe. You got to heal from that stubbed toe. Yes. You know. So let's let's try to agree to not compare stories because mm-hmm. that's not what it's about. Someone else's pain does not have anything to do with my pain or healing. Yes. You know. Um, that's one thing. And I think the second thing is a lot of times survivors, we like to look back and even myself, I'm guilty of this. I like to look back in my own experience and think, how could I not recognize? How could I not have said no? How could I have, you know, allowed quote unquote allowed this to happen? We see this a lot, especially with I guess that's another soapbox I don't have to get on. But we, we see it a lot with like news, like people's responses to news stories. Yeah. Right. If a, if a, um, a teacher who's a woman sexually abuses a student who is a boy, then that boy must be lucky. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when I was a kid, I had a fantasy about a teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we, my whole point with all this is we like to look back at these childhood experiences with our adult lenses yes. and say, how, how could I have done this? How did I not know better? Well, just because you know better now doesn't mean you knew better then. Mm-hmm. And we have to forgive ourselves for not knowing then what we know now, yes. you know, um, and we can't, we can't hold ourselves to that standard. I'm in my thirties now. I don't know what I, you know, I, I didn't know at 13 what I know now. And so, yeah, let's let's not compare our stories to others mm-hmm. or how they heal, how they're hurt. Mm-hmm. And let's remember, especially for childhood abuse survivors, we were kids. Mm-hmm. We did not have the same knowledge that we have now. And uh, we're not expected to. It's okay that we didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, we were kids. Yeah. I love that. I think um, those are two excellent points all the time. Mm-hmm. This hierarchy of pain that we create yeah. is ours. Yeah. And it's so subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a person who um, everyone has a story. And when someone feels that they have to hold their story in because they don't feel it's relevant or important enough. And don't get me wrong. I get how they feel that way because that mm-hmm. is the culture and the society that we live in. Right. Everything is about <laughs> stepping on someone else's neck so you can get higher. Right. Even if it's pain. So I get that. But I love those two things you shared. I think for me... 
one thing that comes up and if people have been tuning into the podcast, I will talk about my work in developmental and relational trauma and uh, the inner child experience. Mm -hmm. And so for me, what I understand is those parts of us who were wounded uh, and some of the wounds are so significant, they left imprints. That part still exists within us. Mm -hmm. It's still very much alive. So that eight-year-old little boy who can't wait to every other weekend, he's still in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this 13-year-old boy is still in there. All these parts of us are there. And so when we are in our functional adult and we're going about life, there is a part of us that says, hey, this is not impacting me right now. You know, I've, 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 I've moved past that. I've forgotten about that. I don't want to dwell on that. Okay, for the functional adult. But have we given that little child what they needed, Mm -hmm. always needed, but never got, but always deserved? And so what that means sometimes is when something comes up and we become afraid and we're like, where is this coming from? It's probably not you, functional adult. It's that younger part in you. Mm -hmm. And what they need to hear, see and experience is I hear you. I hear you. I see you. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay not to know. And as we begin to nurture those parts of us, we do begin to heal. But for me, I want people to just be honest. Don't, you may think, just be honest. Some people don't even think they healed. They're just saying it. And that doesn't mean, and this is not even my push to go to therapy. Right. That's a whole (laughs) nother topic, right? It's just move towards healing Mm -hmm. in whatever capacity that you have for that. And I think complexities that, you know, were part of the stories we have, but maybe not explicitly stated is when it is a parent, when it is a family member, Mm -hmm. it's not just this person has authority. It's this is all I have with my dad. And I am going to lose that. If I say something, Yeah, that is huge. Mm -hmm. He is the access to the siblings you've always wanted. Well, and at the time that I decided to tell my stepmom was pregnant with my youngest brother, you know. And so it was even this whole other thing of, uh, and I recognized at that time that my dad made most of the money, you know. And so what happens to them? Yeah. You know, if he goes to jail, which I knew, I think I knew that that was maybe a possibility. Mm-hmm. And to the point, I, I asked the judge not to put him in jail mm-hmm. for that reason. Mm-hmm. And um, the judge was, was, I really, you know, I see the name around the city a lot and um, it's at this point now, not even him anymore. It's his son, but the Mm -hmm. name is still there. And I probably, I I don't know anything about what they believe, that family or what they, but I I remember you listened to me as a kid and you honored what I asked. Mm -hmm. And so we may believe, we may agree on nothing politically, but I always am going to have a little bit of respect for you because you listened to me as a kid Mm -hmm. and you said, I'm going to honor what he ask and I'm not going to put you in jail, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, which I mean, I think about all the stories I've heard and all the things that work against survivors Mm. and, and it's true in society. It is the messages we hear when our favorite artists, when we find out that they are, you know, we've, we've had lots of talks about R. (laughs) Kelly, you Mm -hmm. know, and about, I mean, other comedians, other actors, whatever, Harvey Weinstein's in the news right now. There's, it's all around us, mm-hmm. right? And the, the messaging is not kind to survivors. No. Um, and I just landed 
through nothing that I did with all the right people going to bat for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it was it was my mom and it was the the men that she was friends with that she was able to surround me with. Mm-hmm. It was my uncles. It was being a member of her specific church. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was and it was this judge. It was everything that if I was able to somehow be empowered, I was I was empowered. Mm-hmm. And th- there are so many who are not fortunate to have what I was given. Mm-hmm. And and that's why, that's where, I just, it, it's it's a thing that says, why shouldn't everybody have that? Why shouldn't everybody have what I was given? Mm-hmm. You know, I have the option to give that and to create an organization that gives that. Why would I not? Yeah. I, we have to. Mm-hmm. That's the love part. Yeah, that <laughs> is know? the love part. No, I love that. And a whole different, you know, um, podcast can be how these things manifest throughout the lifespan for Mm -hmm. survivors. But I think it's so important today that we talk about this. The prevalence of this is staggering and it's just one in six boys, Mm -hmm. one in four girls Mm -hmm. will be sexually abused before they turn 18. I want people to literally take a moment and think about those numbers. Yeah. One in six boys and one in four girls, this is going to happen to them. And when we walk around trying to, I don't even say trying to, when we walk around in what we think is blissful ignorance that this is happening, we are unintentionally hurting people even when we consider ourselves helpers. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I really wanted to hit on today was that We happen to be in a space where we are two survivors who have gone on to create life work to help other people who have been hurt. And I'm thankful for us and our work. Mm -hmm. But we're one of few. Yeah. And there are so many more people who are hurting with what has happened to them in their childhood, not having the safety and the support to be able to talk about it. And as they, as these, as the hurt and the pain of what happened to them in childhood continues to manifest itself in survival patterns into adulthood, people find themselves judging them for those survival patterns and saying, well, they oughta and they should have and never knowing. So I think one thing I offer is when you look to a person and you want to judge their behavior, a question I train everyone that I train to ask is, lean in with curiosity instead of judgment. Mm -hmm. And a good question is, I wonder how that behavior is keeping them alive. If we can start to look at things from that perspective, we will realize that everybody is out here, for the most part, doing the best they can to survive. It is survival. And if, if, if abuse is in their childhood, that is part of the template through which they are living out their lives, how to survive from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. And I think people have an idea in their mind of what a childhood, uh, childhood sexual abuse survivor looks like and does. And I want to reframe that, right? I want to give context. Now they hear two more, but then we're not the gold standard. 
Right. Okay? So I don't want anybody being like, well, I've listened to this podcast. It's pretty awesome, and you should give it five stars. That's what they're going to say, of course. But I listened to this podcast, and she's gone through. She had a guest on, and they've both done that. Eventually, yours earlier than mine, but we found the support, and we found the safety we needed. Mm -hmm. And there is no healing without safety. Period. And so how do we, as just citizens of this world learn to start creating the safety that people need to heal hmm. instead of being the threat that is that is going against their healing. And that just means soften your eyes and give a smile. Yeah. You don't have to know a person's story to know that everyone has a story. Mm-hmm. And so I love um, A Voice for the Innocent because it provides this outlet that people may not be able to find in their churches, which is again, a whole nother podcast, um, <laughs> in their communities, in their families, because it gets complex. It does. God, it's complex. But now there is a place. So I love that. Before telling people more specifically about how they can find that, can you talk to us a little bit about the Women's Crisis Center? Sure. Um, so I I was, uh, I found myself when, when A Voice for the Innocent was kind of going, Um, people were asking me to come talk about it. And I never expected that I would, A, be good at public speaking, Mm -hmm. and B, like it, I really enjoy it. Um, And so they asked me to come speak at a Take Back the Night, um, which if you or your listeners are not familiar, it is a just a night when people can. uh, It's for survivors of sexual sexual assault, sexual violence. um, And they, there's a, there's a, a chant and a march, but then there's also usually a speaker or two. There's a musical guest. And then the end of the night um, is a survivor speak out when people can come up and know that they can speak and mm-hmm. be supported by the crowd. Mm-hmm. And then there's a candlelight vigil at the end. Um, Who hosts this? So it is actually hosted. So Take Back the Night is a national thing. It's been going on, I think, for 30, 40 years. Wow. Maybe longer. Okay. Uh, but it's not like a national organization. This is just kind of this national idea. Mm-hmm. Every city, most cities, I should say, kind of have their own. Okay. So there's the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky Take Back the Night. I'm not sure when you plan on post, posting this. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the area, it's uh, this year's is April 23rd um, at Hofner Park in Northside. They try to do Kentucky one year, Cincinnati one year. Mm-hmm. Um but so the main, it is mainly hosted by Women's Crisis Center, which is the Northern Kentucky Agency, and Women Helping Women, which is the Cincinnati Agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but different colleges have a Take Back the Nine. NKU has their own. UC usually has their own. So it's something that people can just kind of own, you know, when they want. But I was asked uh, about six years ago to come speak at one. And I, I spoke, um, I sent in, I'd never spoken publicly, and I sent in my speech and I said, uh, can you just read over this? Let me know if this is okay. And and they came back and said, we'd like you to put a call to action at the end. There's a movement happening locally called Green Dot. Um, and it's all about people being able to stop violence when they see it, stop these forms of violence. And so I was like, great. I, and I researched it a little bit. I read about it and I talked about it at the end of my speech at Take Back the Night. And as it turns out, Green Dot is the prevention program that is out of Women's Crisis Center. And people were from Women's Crisis Center were there that night. And here I am, not having been through their program, but talking about 
their program. And so they said, uh, hey, do you want to come work with us? And I was like, yeah, I sure do. You know, and I was working at a bookstore at that time and I, I loved it and I loved the people I worked with. And some days I want to go back. But um, I was supposed to be at Women's Crisis Center. Mm-hmm. And so I went and started doing prevention. But I learned about all the services that are there. So there, there's in the state of Kentucky where I work, there are uh, sexual assault agencies and there are domestic violence agencies. And there are a couple dual agencies that are kind of work to support survivors of both. And mm-hmm. we are one of the state's uh, dual agencies. And what that means is we have a shelter um, for people who are fleeing, you know, uh, domestic violence or getting out of abusive relationships. Um, we uh, provide hospital advocacy. So anytime somebody in the state of, well, I guess in our 13 counties shows up to a hospital um, to get the SANE exam, the sexual assault nurse exam, which is other, a lot of people call it a rape kit, um, or um, having been hurt by domestic violence, we send an advocate out free of charge. And it's just somebody who is there to say, here's some resources for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, court advocacy. So if somebody has is, is got to go to court um, against their abuser, we send somebody out with them. We offer counseling. We offer um, lots of, just lots of different things, you know, um, all to be able to support survivors of sexual yes. violence and domestic violence. And so um, I worked on the Green Dot team there for about five years and just kind of moved into the um, this month into the communications coordinator role. But, you know, I love it. I, I, am, um, I, am, I am the person there who has the most to learn. I am surrounded mm-hmm. by all people who are just so smart and so passionate and, and have so much still to teach me. And, you know, it's... Um, it's really an honor to work for that agency just because it's, it's, they care, especially the leadership, they just care so much, Mm. you know? So, yeah. So if, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not certain where your listener base is, uh, podcasts are accessible everywhere, Mm. but if, if somebody is, um, in, uh, the Kentucky area and feels like they need help, you know, there's the, um, you can call our. Our hotline, which of course I don't have the number available in my head, we'll it's make not sure memorized. We put that yeah, in the, I can. In the I will. Notes. <laughs> yeah, but the hotline is available, um, and you can just you know you you don't have to be in crisis to call. You can just call and learn more. And it's called Women's Crisis Center. It's what we 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 provide services for all genders and all people, so um, not just women. Um, yeah, and so that's that's yes. kind of how I got involved there, and I've been there for about five years. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like an awesome organization um but they are also very fortunate and blessed to have you as well well that's kind of and you. you know i as we begin to wrap up i want to just again thank you for coming on sharing your story um stories are so important um and it's hard for people to talk about their story of surviving but you just do not hear a lot of men doing this and so i i have appreciation for everyone including myself and my transparency i do but i really really want to thank you for being um a man who's sharing his story um i think it gives hope um i think it empowers other people to share theirs and it is my hope that my listeners feel encouraged and empowered throughout this so before we finally kind of give your ads and how people can get in touch with you and what you're doing i always like to ask my guests to share something unique different uh something maybe a little known fact about yourself that just helps you connect with the listenership abroad (laughs) 
So I, I don't know, anyone who knows me knows that this is not a little known fact, but probably the thing that people, if it's not this work, the thing that's most associated with me is Ninja Turtles, probably. You've probably noticed. Well, I'm yeah. looking at the tattoos on your yes, arm. Yes, I have, I have <laughs> the four Ninja Turtles tattooed around my arm, but I also have collected the toys since I was a kid. Nice. And so my basement is just, you know, all, I mean, it's all Ninja Turtle toys set up and displayed and, you know. I'm 36 years old, but I am a, a giant nerd about Ninja Turtles. Um, and we can do a separate episode just on okay, Ninja Turtles if cool. you want. Well, <laughs> listen, may not be far off. I got a few yeah. things cooking in my mind about okay. cartoons and trauma. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Jamie, I am so grateful and thank you that you joined us please tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you if they wanted to contact you personally and if you have any information for how they can get in touch with the voice for the innocent or the women's crisis center let them know how to find you yeah so uh first i'll go women's crisis center which i was fortunate that i had a card in my pocket that has the number on it so if you just want to learn more or if you are in crisis you know if it's an emergency call 911 but if it's Mm -hmm. Less less of an emergency, um, or you just want more info, and you're in the Northern Kentucky area, um, 800-928-3335. It's 24 hours. It's anonymous. Um, and really, I'll just say this. I don't care where you're listening. That's a resource for you. Mm-hmm. We may not be able to send somebody to a hospital or put you up in our shelter, but they'll talk to anybody. They'll help anybody. So no matter where you are, that's a resource for you. Um, with a voice for the innocent, um, avfti.org or a voice for the innocent.org you can anonymously share your story it's very easy to do um you can do that there like i said you can make an email address right before signing up so you don't have to it's not done have to be linked with anything if you're looking to volunteer our volunteers give about an hour a week they can respond to stories that's what they do we train them how to do it and you do it um Basically, you choose a day that you can respond. So it's every Tuesday, if you choose Tuesday or every Saturday or whatever. Um, and we put you on that day's team and you just give, you, we ask that you respond to five to seven stories a week and we tell you how to do that. Um, on social media, or just a voice for the innocent on Facebook, at AVFTI on Twitter and Instagram. And my personal Twitter and Instagram are at Jamie Cyrus, J A M I E S I V R A I S. Awesome. And that's well, so it. We're going to also have that information in the show notes um, so that you can access it there. Yeah. So once again, Jamie, thank you so much for being here. I want to say that um, Jamie and I have a mutual friend and colleague, Chris Stiles yes. uh, from the Cassie Project. And yes. she'll definitely be on the podcast soon. And we met uh, recently at one of the um, Eyes Wide Shut yes. events that are happening, kind of a bi-monthly show that I'll be putting out a lot of information on social media. And so... You know, I feel like we're sitting here like we've been friends for forever, but yeah. it, it really is a new relationship. Yeah. Um, but man, when you find people who are passionate, like-minded, and are striving to help people and create community, it just comes together and it feels like you've, you know, you've known each other for a really long time. So Agreed. I'm excited for this new but very promising and budding relationship um, yeah. that we have. So to my listeners, as always, I am so thankful that you spend time listening to the podcast. We are on all the social media outlets and you can reach our website at www.thelaboursoflove.com. Don't forget that we have our YouTube channel where every Thursday I post a Therapy Thursday video. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, share, give us that five star so we can move up so that many people know that we have great information and even better guests. So until we connect again, be well.